This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work Session 12, Race and Education in Guilford County. The Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance series Doing Our Work continues with scholar and activist Gary Kenton giving a brief introduction on race and education in Guilford County, followed by an in-depth presentation by John Batchelor, author of Race and Education in North Carolina, From Segregation to Desegregation. I'm actually going to do a little more than just introduce our speakers. Our speaker, I am going to talk for about 10 minutes um, to give you a snapshot of the disparities that exist in the Guilford County Schools before John goes through the history. But I am going to start um, with a little personal narrative, which is the first time I went through the anti-racism training I was a special education teacher at Smith High School. And uh, the person whose classroom I went into when I first got my first job there is Devetta Bristow, who is here. And I just want to say anything that I did not learn from my students, I learned from Devetta Bristow. Uh, so thank you for, for being here. Um, but um, going through the training, Main, one of the main things you learn is that this isn't an individual thing, it's systemic. So the bad news is there I was learning that this was a system problem and that I was the edge of the sword, so to speak. I was the instrument of oppression um, in the classroom. Um, this was very hard for me to take. Uh, I knew I have a son who's on the autism spectrum, so I felt I had a calling to do special education, to work with students with disabilities. But all of a sudden, I was aware that my interaction with the students was just a small part of their interaction with the school system as a whole. There was all these rules, customs, expectations that I was representing in the classroom. So there were testing procedures, there were dress codes, there were assumptions that teachers make about whether students are capable of finding a quiet place to do homework. You know, the list goes on and on of things that impact the student that have nothing to do with how good or bad the teacher is or the lesson plans or anything like that. With one or two exceptions, uh, my students hated school. And at the beginning, they hated me. Um, as the year went on, I think I gained a little trust and they hated me somewhat less. Um, but I began to realize that the students had good reason to hate school. One of the things I learned is that a lot of their parents had gone to Smith High School and they had hated school. So these kids, before they even walked through the door, were prepared for the fact that school was not going to care for them. School was going to be difficult for them. There were going to be obstacles put in front of them. It wasn't because they weren't prepared, and it wasn't because they were lazy, although there was some of that. Um, but they, they hated it, and they had good reason to hate it. So they, had, they couldn't articulate it, but they had an analysis of what was going on around them. 
They understood, their parents understood that the deck was stacked against them. Yes, there were individuals who were motivated to overcome these insults and these obstacles, but the set of circumstances is simply too much to expect most teenagers to overcome it. One thing I'll never forget is when the students confided in me, I guess this was the trust part, that what they were really after in life was a D. A D, really? And they said, yeah, well, an A, Bs, or Cs would mark them as goody-goodies or sellouts or what the scholars might call as being complicit in their own oppression. An F would mean they'd have to do the course again, so that was a hassle. So a D was the ideal. That depressed me for weeks, but I could not argue that this was an irrational strategy on their part. It made sense within their context. I also began to ask some of the bigger questions, like why were these particular students in special ed class in the first place? The overwhelming majority of kids in special ed were students of color. And the majority of them did not have marked disabilities. By the same, the next obvious question was, what about the academically gifted classes? Why were those students in those classes? The overwhelming answer is that they were majority white students and that the majority of them did not show any obvious academic gifts. So I think, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize about these programs, but if you take them together, academically gifted, advanced placement, international baccalaureate programs can be seen as a vehicle for white families to move their students out of classes in which they might not be the majority into classes where they surely would be the majority. And this might be called an internal white flight program. So, with that, um, I'm going to show you a few slides. They're fairly self-explanatory. Um, I'm not going to do that much talking around them, but just to, this snapshot, I promised. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. So these are career and college-ready disparities, came from the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. And you see very clearly the stair step down from white students to black students. Okay, This is uh, a couple of years older, came from Guilford County Schools, but a very similar snapshot. The um, lighter colored golden line on the bottom is, are, is state data. The gray line is Guilford County Schools data. But overall, it's the same picture. All right. This is, this is sort of the key slide to look at, and much could be said about it, but you have two things, performance by race and by class. EDS are economically disadvantaged students. So you have a large disparity between white and black, and between the n kids who are wealthier or kids that are poorer. But if you, and there, there's various, I mean, this is raw data, of course, it needs much more to be um, per, you know, properly interpreted. But one thing you can come away with is a point that Baylove made as part of his groundwater presentation, which is that socioeconomic disadvantage does not explain the disparities. That 
the disparities are similar, but one cannot explain the other. In other words, you can't say the reason that black students are per performing at a lower level is because they're poor. Obviously, that's a factor, but it's not a cause. Okay. All right. Another way of, of seeing the disparities is to look at discipline. And again, you see very clearly um, white males are about, what, 18% of the population, and they have about 17% of the in-school or out-of-school suspensions. And by the way, I should say, Claire Morris got some of this data, what, 20 years ago? It hasn't changed much. Um, then you see white females that are about 17% of the school population and account for a little over 5% of the in-school and out-of-school suspensions. Black males, about a little over 20% of the public school population, but 47% of the suspensions. And black females, about 20% of the population and about 22, 23% of the in-school and out-of-school suspensions. There's also a lot of data about disparate punishments for the same crimes or same offenses uh, between the races. So again, the, ne the next two slides I stole directly from Bay Love uh, and the groundwater presentation. This shows that I just showed you education. This shows that these disparities are roughly the same across all systems in the state. Whether it's, and I'm, I'm sorry, I know you can't, can't read that writing on the bottom. It's, whether it's health, education, criminal justice, um, I'm sorry, CPS. Child Protective Services, thank you. Uh, or uh, economic, the economic domain, the, the disparities remain very similar across the board. That's the whole state. And nationally, these are the national figures. Does hardly changes at all from North Carolina to the national picture. All right. With that, bring you the uh, headline act of the evening. Um, John Batchelor uh, is going to walk us through the history. John, as some of you know, lives a double life. Uh, John is the usually mild-mannered uh, food and restaurant critic for the Greensboro News and Record. I've never asked him how he got the job of being paid to go out and eat, but we'll leave that for another time. Uh, when he hasn't been seeking out culinary delights. He has had a rather impressive career in education as a teacher, as a principal, and as a superintendent in schools across North Carolina. He's also served as a school improvement and leadership consultant with the Success for All Foundation and the Center for Data-Driven Reform and Education at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of uh, several books, including A History of Guilford County Schools and the more recent uh, book, which is floating around the sanctuary, I believe, called Race and Education in North Carolina, From Segregation to Desegregation. John.
thank you very much for inviting me this evening. Uh, I've got to tell you, having a minister on her knees in front of me is a unique experience in my life, and it just doesn't feel right. So I hope this goes okay, but it's, it's really making me nervous. Um, I am from Greensboro. I grew up in Greensboro. I went to private schools in the first grade and the 10th grade. Page private school because my mother could not afford daycare and so she was able to enroll me in a school that accepted children a year before they were eligible to enroll in public school. So I was able to basically skip first grade. And then in the 10th grade, because I was a bad boy, I went to Augusta Military Academy, Fort Defiance, Virginia, sir! And then I was allowed to return home. I graduated from Page High School in uh, 1964, and I believe that my class was the first to include black students. I went to Guilford College and began teaching in the Guilford County Schools in the fall of 1969, and that was the first year of widespread busing and full desegregation in the Guilford County Schools. So as I remark in the introduction to this book, I have not only researched these issues from the point of view of a scholar, but I have lived them. Um, punched a button. The book was published by Louisiana State University Press, and I'm proud to be affiliated with them. It did create a bit of a problem because there is a passage in the book where I state that the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is the first state university. You may not be aware that LSU also claims to be the first state university. So I had to revise the wording of that statement very carefully in order to pass muster with the editors at LSU. Push the button. Um, a fundamental understanding about the nature of the educational system in the world, not just the United States, but certainly the United States, is that discrimination has always been a fundamental element of the system. And in this book, I discuss how in other countries and at other points in time, education has always been regarded as a privilege for the elite, not a right for the people as a whole. Thomas Jefferson, for example, advocated a free public education, but that was regarded as a radical idea, and the word education never made its way into the Constitution of the United States, thus reserving all educational functions to the states. The federal government has no legal authority with regard to education, except to the extent that the states agree to allow the federal government to have any inroad into education, and the way that the federal government acquires that inroad is offering money. And there is a well-known Greensboro, North Carolina Supreme Court decision, uh, which, is well, which is known as the Moses Cone Hospital case, where the courts decided that if anybody, any entity, a state, a municipality, agrees to accept federal funding, they can also be required to abide by the regulations that are attached to that funding. That is a national precedent that has been in place since the 1970s, and it came from Greensboro Moses Cone Hospital. Uh, restrictions based on race have always been the strongest, but it's important to understand that discrimination is not restricted to race. 
Discrimination exists on the basis of a number of criteria. Gender, geographic location, family background, and race. But race has always been, far and away, the most deeply embedded, the strongest, the most restrictive. Just an example or two. When I talk about discrimination, gender discrimination, for example, not necessarily a deliberate decision on the part of bad people, just the way we know things ought to be based on what we know at the time. For example, good, honest, conscientious, caring guidance counselors, knowing that girls are not good in math, did not recommend that girls take higher math classes in high school. And you know what? Girls on standardized tests didn't do as well on higher math questions as boys. And then some brilliant researcher with a million dollar grant figured out that girls who had been taught higher math knew more about higher math than girls who hadn't been taught about higher math. And that is a brilliant conclusion that people at major universities get tenure for being able to prove and discover. Well, the nature of discrimination has a history. Before the Civil War, the North Carolina Constitution provided for the establishment of public schools. But the legislature, in its infinite wisdom, never provided any money to establish any public schools for over 50 years. In the 1830s, the legislature resolved one source of great evil which suggests itself is the teaching of slaves to read and write, thereby affording them facilities of intelligence and communication inconsistent with their condition, destructive of their contentment and happiness, and dangerous to the community. That's a direct quote. So, although the state had never provided any education to any children, certainly not to black children, certainly not to the children of slaves, they became concerned that some well-meaning white people, the kind of people who attend meetings like this, might sneak around and teach children, black children, how to read and write. Well, we can't allow that. So they made teaching black children or adults to read and write a crime. After the Civil War, the new Constitution directed the General Assembly to provide a system of public schools supported by taxes. The public schools were supported as much by the Freedmen's Bureau, the federal intervention uh, agency, and by private philanthropic organizations as by the state. The Peabody Fund, for example, this is the family that owned Sears and Roebuck Company, provided a great deal of money to help the education of both races. But the way it worked out from the end of the Civil War through the mid-1870s, when I looked at the statistics, and there are some tables in the, in the book, what I found was greater educational opportunity and higher levels of enrollment for longer periods of, of term were provided to black children in cities than to white children during this period. That led, of course, to a great deal of resentment. And consequently, by the mid-1870s, a movement was well afoot to restore 
the structure, the power structure that, that had existed before the Civil War. And in 1877, in the context of the great compromise in American history, Democrats, conservative Democrats, racially conservative Democrats, regained control of the General Assembly and recommended, passed, and in referendum adopted an amendment to the Constitution providing for separate schools for black and white, although the law said no preference to either race may exist. We will come back to that phrase in a moment or two. Schools for white children, in fact, dramatically declined compared to the level of education that was provided in cities before uh, the 1870s. And for blacks, the schools were essentially abolished. Taxation by law during this period was only allowed for, quote, necessary purposes. What is a necessary purpose? And there's a section in the book about litigation that sought to define necessary purposes. And the classic case in North Carolina history is one where the courts ruled that taxation to ensure the removal of wild pigs from the streets of the cities was a necessary purpose, but taxation to support the education of children beyond four months was not a necessary purpose kinda tells you where the priorities were. During this period, cities began making the boundaries of the city limit coterminous with a school district. And because taxation was illegal only for necessary purposes, cities made city school districts a separate district wherein they were able to established for supplemental school taxes to support better schools. As a result, in the county systems all over North Carolina, including Guilford County, children went to school for a term of four months, and in the cities, they went to school for a term of nine to 10 months. This is another way of saying that the term of education provided by the state of North Carolina was as good prior to 1900 as 2000. And in between, it was worse. In 1899, a constitutional amendment required a literacy test for voting. And the purpose of that literacy test was to disenfranchise black voters. A grandfather clause, however, ensured that no white voter would lose his or her, his right to vote. A, a, a note of irony, black males required, acquired the right to vote in North Carolina 50 years before white females. But then that vote was taken away. So it's white males only starting around 1900. The legal doctrine that governed race and education and a lot of society was separate but equal, quote unquote, from the Supreme Court decision Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. That decision was argued by Albion Tourget, who lived in Greensboro. He was a carpetbagger, white attorney, who was a judge after, during Reconstruction, after the Civil War. 
And he argued on behalf of Homer Plessy, who was noted by the court to be of only one-eighth African blood, and the phrase African blood is a direct quotation. Uh, but the court ruled that separate accommodations were legal and requiring separation of the races was legal, provided that the accommodations were equal. We'll talk about equal in a second. That concept was applied to education in the Supreme Court decision Cumming versus Board of Education. Black students in Richmond County, Georgia, were never provided with a high school education, but the Supreme Court ruled that it was within the Board of Education's prerogative to decide what type of education to provide. How would you determine, as a school administrator, who is black and who is white? And there are about 20 to 30 years of court cases where litigation and legislation sought to determine who is black, who is white. The North Carolina General Assembly, in its infinite wisdom, passed a law in 1889 that anyone with a black ancestor within three generations was black, not partially, just black. And in 1903, the law was changed to read in an even more restrictive form, any child with, quote, Negro blood or what is known as Croatan Indian blood in his veins, however remote, cannot attend white schools. Notice the constant reference in the legislation to blood. It's the way that everybody thought. It's the way that medicine defined characteristics. In Medlin versus County Board of Education, the, United, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled affirming a trial court case where the racial identity of a child was in question. And at the trial court, the judge brought the child in front of the jury and said, what is he? And the jury looked at him and they said, looks white to us. The North Carolina Supreme Court, I'm not making this up, ruled, and I quote, whenever a jury of 12 white men has determined the race of a child, there can be no doubt of the correctness of their decision. <laughs> What's the nature of inequality under separate but equal? The short answer is always separate, never equal. For example, with regard to enrollment, in schools. There are a number of tables in, in this, this book. Black and white kids were approximately equal in terms of enrollment around the turn of the century. The enrollment of black kids declined in the 1920s and the 1930s. And for both races, about a third of the children were not enrolled in school at all. Compulsory attendance laws were passed in 1907, but they were not enforced for black kids, only for white kids, and really only for white kids from neighborhoods where somebody wanted to go out and look for them. The idea that white kids who grew up in the mill village in Greensboro needed to go to school 
was widely regarded as just nonsense. Why would they need to do that? So enrollment levels were lower for blacks, but not dramatically so. Attendance levels were much lower through the 1940s. So although the law said separate but equal, in terms of the kids that were actually in school, nothing like equal ever occurred. With regard to the school term, around 1900, school term was equal. For the 1930s and 40s, black schools had about a 20-day per year lower term. But then by 1950, the terms were equal again. This is the biggest discriminator with regard to race. And as a former school superintendent administrator, I know where these records are kept because I had to fill these forms out every year for 20 years. So I knew where to look for these data. So that's how I was able to compile these tables. The value of school property is an indicator of how big the school is, the quality of the school building itself, the number of teachers in the school. It, it defines the nature of the school that is, that is available. And what I found was in 1905-1906, the average value for white rural schools was $319 versus $13,000 for white city schools. Recall in the 1970s, city schools began to make the city limits a school district and implement supplemental taxes for their schools. That's a huge disparity. And that's for white kids. For black kids, Rural schools, the average value of the building was $136 versus $3,000 plus for black city schools. Now, cross-reference those data. For a school to have a value of $136, it means it's a one-room log cabin with no heat and no water. But black city schools had buildings that were approximately 10 times, statistically speaking, the quality of white rural schools. So another example of what I was talking about when I said discrimination doesn't just follow racial lines, it follows locality, where the kid grew up, who his parents were, where they lived. Okay. Teacher salaries. The state basically maintained a lower salary scale for black teachers and a higher salary scale for white teachers until the 1940s. In the 1940s, the state began starting to appropriate funds for the express purpose of equalizing the pay scales. And that initiative was really promoted by the state of North Carolina in, in litigation whenever the state was a defendant. And they would roll this out as, you know, we did this, nobody sued us, we did it on our own accord. The rest of the story is, all over the United States, there were lawsuits underway, litigating, challenging, pay disparities, and the lawyers who were elected state officials knew about these cases. So they knew what was coming, they were just trying to get ahead of the curve. And there are documents in the state archives that prove that assertion. T 
teacher salaries for black and white were equaled by about 1945. Go ahead. So the legacy of separate but equal, this is a quotation from federal judge Leon Higginbotham. Many more millions of Amer African Americans were denied the benefits of first-class citizenship by the Supreme Court's opinions in Plessy versus Ferguson and other related cases than by all the machinations of the Ku Klux Klan. Why was the discrimination so strong and so effective against blacks? Because it was the law. Because the United States Supreme Court validated the law. And I make this point, and I provide this quotation in order to segue into an, an, a key understanding, in my opinion, of the situation. When we focus on the extremes, we miss what's really important. The, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, a violent, a malevolent organization. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a little bit. But they never denied educational opportunity to black children at any level comparable to what the General Assembly of the state of North Carolina did and the Supreme Court. Why did we make the change from separate by law, never equal, to a new goal? equal educational opportunity for all. And I would make the point that equal educational opportunity for all, regardless of race, gender, only became a goal of the educational system in the United States in the 1980s and 90s. It was never part of the system until then. The impetus for change in education came more overwhelmingly, more than any other source, from lawsuits filed by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And the NAACP, founded in 1909, focused on lawsuits and focused on the doctrine of separate but equal and focused on education for several reasons. And in retrospect, the reasoning was brilliant and it's traceable to a group of professors at Howard University. Uh, a university that graduated the best, the most prominent uh, black attorneys in United States history. If there is no law school for blacks, then no state can claim equal educational opportunity for law school for blacks. And in the majority of southern states, in all southern states, there were no law schools for blacks. There was hardly any professional educational opportunity at all beyond the baccalaureate degree. So there was no need to litigate the issue of equality. The schools didn't exist. Can't be equal. Second, leaders figured, leaders of the NAACP figured that judges would be more sympathetic to men seeking a law degree than any other type of education possible because they were judges. And I use the word men deliberately because women didn't go to law school in those days. There were no women in law schools. 
That also provided another advantage. The great fear that appears repeatedly when I research the archives, the literature, is miscegenation. White males, white females, but especially white males, white leaders, were absolutely terrified at the prospect of male and female connections across race. They were just terrified of the, of, of the possibility. And they were convinced that if males and females of different races were allowed to be in the same room together, this would just explode because of various reasons. The males would be infused with unbridled sexuality and the females would be unable to resist the advances. And of course, you know, everybody knew in those days that women couldn't control themselves. And there were medical treatments to help this condition. I'm not going to talk to about that, talk to you about that in a church, but there's a really good movie about it. Um, and the other reason is white society would not be as intimidated by the prospect of adult adults in the same classroom as opposed to children in the same classroom. So by focusing on lawsuits challenging law schools, the NAACP, NAACP came up with a strategy that was unassailable on all of the grounds that had been promulgated to support segregation. A series of decisions, first at the higher education level, and then gradually, and we're talking a 40-year period now, one decision after another, and it's almost an inexorable march. You can see the decision coming when you study the cases and you read the opinions of the judges. You can just see what's coming. And these decisions culminated with the application of voiding separate but equal at the elementary and secondary level in Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. The essential points of Brown versus Board of Education were segregation is inherently discriminatory and segregated schools by law are inherently unequal. But the court said, recognized that appropriate relief represents problems of considerable complexity. Who would have ever imagined it would be that complex? <laughs> I'm not going there, but you can see the, 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 the parallel. And so the court told Southern school systems, you must desegregate, quote, with all deliberate speed. What does that mean? Deliberate speed. The terms are inherently contradictory. Well, actually, there's a precedent. The state of West Virginia and the state of Virginia sued each other because West Virginia seceded from Virginia prior to the Civil War, and Virginia demanded that an indemnity be paid. And the Supreme Court said, indeed, West Virginia must pay the state of Virginia an indemnity and they must proceed with all deliberate speed to cough up the money. Took them a long time. And that's exactly what the court was signaling. We're not gonna tell you how long you have, 
but you gotta start thinking about this. And the Supreme Court scheduled hearings a year later to argue appropriate remedies. Probably the best known argument presented to the Supreme Court in what I call Brown II came from the state of North Carolina. I'll tell you who did it in a second. Now, in the 1950s, what's the context of Brown versus Board of Education? North Carolina was widely regarded by historians and by, by journalists as the moderate, the role model for race relations in the South. The level of violence that characterized Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina didn't exist in North Carolina. It was a relatively peaceful state governed by lawyers for 50 years within the framework of a rule of law. Now, that rule of law, as we have seen, had some very clear limitations, but it was an orderly, moderate, well-run, relatively clean, uncorrupt state compared to the other southern states and northern states as well. But there was an active Ku Klux Klan in North Carolina and everybody knew it. On the other hand, voting requirements in North Carolina kind of fit the mid-range. We weren't the best, we weren't the worst, we were kind of in the middle. On the more liberal scale, North Carolina was the only southern state to support Harry Truman at the Democratic Convention in 1948 in the face of Truman's avowed support for civil rights and the establishment of the first Civil Rights Commission. This was, liberal is too soft a word. It was radical compared to the rest of the South. North Carolina was out there in the front, forefront. Perhaps the best illustration of how far ahead North Carolina was compared to the other states was the North, state of North Carolina elected Carr Scott governor in 1948. Carr Scott, the squire of Alamance County, the first non-lawyer in generations to be elected governor, uh, an agriculture specialist, former commissioner of agriculture, a liberal, not a bad word in those days. He marked his administration early on by appointing the first black to the State Board of Education and the first female to a Superior Court bench, never before in the history of the state. And in 1950, he cemented his legacy as a progressive by appointing Frank Porter Graham to fill the unexpired term of North Carolina's deceased United States Senator. Frank Porter Graham was a monumental liberal, known all over the United States, known all over the world. Chancellor, president of the University of North Carolina, a member of Truman's Civil Rights Commission. He had served on several New Deal agencies. This guy's major league. When it came time for Graham to run for his own term to be elected, he faced in the primary, three opponents, and he won, but he did not receive a majority. So the law provided for a runoff. He was so popular, so well-liked, and so well-known that 
neither of the other two candidates had the slightest inclination to file for a runoff. They pretty much were ready to exceed the election. But then Brown versus Board of, but then one of the cases leading up to Brown versus Board of Education was handed down by the Supreme Court. Not Brown, but one of the preliminary cases. And it blew the establishment out of its frame. And key conservative leaders went to Willis Smith, who was the runner-up in the primary. And one of the key individuals who led this effort in the form of camping out on Willis Smith's front yard in Raleigh, carrying signs, bonfires, please save us, save us, was a young newspaper reporter and radio commentator named Jesse Helms. And the theme was, white people wake up. And literature was distributed all over the state of North Carolina, warning that segregation is about to be outlawed. Race was the most important issue. Graham lost, Smith won. What did people believe in the 1950s? Well, Brown versus Board of Education and other race-related issues gave rise to the, the establishment and the growth of academic sociology as an academic discipline and the types of research and survey research that is now commonplace uh, when anytime you read the newspaper or, or watch, watch TV news. So Guilford County was identified by a team of, of sociologists from, uh, and graduate students from Princeton University as most statistically representative of the South and the nation as a whole. So a team of researchers descended upon Guilford County and did survey research, and the product of their research is, this is the belief system that predominates at the time of Brown versus Board of Education. Blacks are inferior to whites with regard to responsibility, over 70% agree, morality, almost 70% agree, ambition, over two-thirds agree, intelligence, almost 60% agree. Do you prefer segregated schools? Three-fourths, yes. Would you favor a constitutional amendment to close the schools if faced with the threat of integration? Over three-fourths, yes. Would you favor withholding state funding to education if faced with the threat of desegregation? Over 55%, yes. Would you favor closing the public schools in order to avoid desegregation? Almost 44%, yes. Would you support the use of force in order to support segregation? 25%, yes. Now, those are hard-line belief systems, folks, but that's the way it was. How did North Carolina government respond to the Brown decision? In 1952, William B. Umstead was elected governor. The challenges that Brown created would have been difficult 
for anybody. But Governor Umstead was physically frail. He had a heart attack shortly after his inauguration, and he remained bedridden for over a year, and he died about a year and a half after taking office. He was frail. He did the best he could. He acknowledged the Brown decision without defiance, remember North Carolina's tradition of moderation, but it's important to understand that although he did not defy, he did not say, we will desegregate. And historians have looked at this and said, well, he should have. Nobody did. Not a single governor ever said, we will desegregate following Brown versus Board of Education. Luther Hodges succeeded Governor Umstead after he died, and Hodges determined early on that the moderate, quiet course that Umstead had established was the way to go for now. So Governor Umstead established and Governor Hodges continued a committee that was biracial, included males and females, a broadly representative committee of very civic-minded uh, individuals, some of whom were members of the legislature, others were lawyers, four university presidents, uh, the editor-publisher of the High Point Enterprise was one of the members of this committee, uh, three black members, but one issue, all three of the blacks on this committee were state employees. Now, how independent could they be? On the other hand, why did the governor appoint three black state employees? I am convinced, having read several thousand pages of correspondence and notes, that he didn't know any other black people. That's all he had. They were the only ones he could see. Go ahead. The first Pearsall Commission issued a draft report and there's a lot of background information that, that I don't have time to tell you, but I was fortunate to know and admire and be uh, a protege, a disciple of a guy named Dallas Herring. Dallas Herring was chairman of the State Board of Education for 25 years, and he was a member of this first Pearsall Commission. He was the youngest mayor in the history of North Carolina. He was from Rose Hill in the eastern part of the state. And Dallas maintained meticulous records. He never threw away a piece of paper. And he had an employee whose job it was to compile and collate and index his papers. And his papers are the largest private collection of documents in the state archives of North Carolina. And for 20 years, I was the only person allowed to see that collection. So that's part of how I was able to figure out what happened on the Pearsall Commission. The Pearsall Committee actually was promoted to the state the way I described it to you, biracial, responsible, etc. But in fact, the committee only met three times and none of the members were provided any information about anything that was going on. And when they got together in December, Chairman Pearsall handed them a draft report and they went nuts when they saw it because they had no inkling of what it was going to say. It had been written behind the scenes 
without the knowledge of the members of the committee. Not a single one had ever seen it. And the report said, we must preserve public education and preserve the peace. But the mixing of the races in the public schools cannot be accomplished and should not be attempted. Well, you can imagine that the black members of the committee were infuriated. So was Dallas Herring. Dallas Herring stood up and walked out of the meeting and refused to sign the report. Ensuing discussion softened the language somewhat. Pearsall called Dr. Herring, convinced him that this is going to work out okay, and was able to secure the signature of every member by softening the language somewhat. What I found actually happened was, behind the scenes, several key members of the General Assembly, strong conservatives, had been in touch with their counterparts in legislatures elsewhere. And they had prepared, in cooperation with the Assistant Attorney General of North Carolina, a gentleman named I. Beverly Lake, a former law professor at Wake Forest Law School, a draft bill that was a verbatim copy of the laws that were passed after Brown in Alabama and Mississippi. So the state that prided itself on moderation and the model of race relations, North Carolina, in fact, copied its response to Brown on the two states, Alabama and Mississippi, that shared the worst race relations in the United States. And this was done behind the scenes without the knowledge of the people who were officially charged with the decision. I can prove this. As a researcher, there have been moments in my life when I have held a document in my hands that, smoking gun, this is it. And that's happened to me for, on several occasions, and it's, it's, an, it's a moving experience to, to see that and finally figure out this is what happened. Go ahead. Now, I, Beverly Lake, starts to become a very prominent political figure in the 1950s. On several occasions, he is asked by the governor and by Thomas Pearsall to help draft legislation that is actually moderate and reasonable. And Lake refuses. He says, I will not draft a bill that does not maintain segregation. And he is hard line on this, and he sticks to his guns. In the fall of, of 1956, he appears before the Ashboro Rotary Club and later before the Gastonia Civitan Club at the invitation of members of the state legislature. And he proposes a new system of public schools supported by, this is a direct quotation, his language, vouchers, wherein the state will issue a voucher on a per pupil basis so that each child can take that voucher to go to a segregated, white-only, private school. Now, in the literature about vouchers and charter schools, now, these ideas are promulgated as growing out of the research of Milton Friedman, a, a famous economist, and Friedman's book was published in 1955. 
and he did argue that competition in a free market will produce a better educational system than publicly funded schools. But Lake was at it before Friedman, and his motivation had nothing to do with improving schools or with providing anything other than segregation. That's where vouchers started, segregation. The Patriots of North Carolina filed a charter with the Secretary of State. 200 members were listed. Reading that list of names, if you've studied North Carolina history, is terrifying. It's the biggest names, the wealthiest people, the best known lawyers, the members of the legislature, the, you name a company, the president of that company is a member of the Patriots. And the goal of the Patriots of North Carolina is to maintain harmonious relations among the races in a segregated setting. So there is no question what the tone of North Carolina is in the 1950s. It's segregation. Moderate leadership, and at this point, my definition of moderate includes the governor, the members of the first Pearsall Commission, and a segment of the General Assembly. And when I say a segment, I got the numbers. I think it's maybe at best 20%. And I can show you the names of 80% of the General Assembly who were ready to close the public schools that day. We're not talking small numbers, folks. The public schools were in peril. And the moderate leadership believed that if they made any step whatsoever towards accommodating desegregation, if they said we will obey Brown, that would be the end of the public school system and they would be turning the political leadership of the state over instantly to the far segregationist right-wing element of the General Assembly. So after that first Pearsall Committee report, Governor Hodges appointed a second Pearsall Committee. Members of the General Assembly came to visit Governor Hodges and they said unequivocally, if you have a black on this committee, it's going nowhere and we will make you pay. So the second commission is all white, all male. It acquires a professional staff. The two professional staff members, led, uh, lawyers, very well-known, very prominent lawyers. W.W. Taylor, an individual from Warren County, and I've interviewed these individuals, uh, Warren County, uh, he attended law school at Wake Forest where he studied under uh, Beverly Lake, and Thomas Ellis. He was a Raleigh attorney, he was the assistant United States attorney, and he was a member of Willis Smith's inner circle of advisors and supporters. Does the name Tom Ellis ring a bell to anybody besides Alan? You know who he is? He was the founder of the Congressional Club that supported Jesse Helms' career. So we're talking very prominent, really good attorneys, uh, highly skilled, well-connected, and their agenda is clear. The report of the second Pearsall Committee, this is issued in 1950s, late 1950s, 1957, said, 
the state should assure parents that no child would ever be required to attend school with a child of another race. The state should provide grants to pay tuition to private schools in order to maintain segregation. The state should repeal all compulsory attendance laws. The state should amend the Constitution and eliminate the public school system altogether. And the state should provide financial and legal assistance to any school board that was defending itself against an integration lawsuit. So in 1956, I told you that was in 1957, it was 1956. So in 1956, Governor Hodges and the General Assembly propose and pass a series of constitutional amendments, not just laws, constitutional amendments. And the campaign to ratify the constitutional amendments is the broadest you will ever see in North Carolina history. Do not make the mistake that, that, of, of thinking this is a bunch of rednecks or, or evil people. One of the individuals who helped with the promotion was William Friday, the University of North Carolina. Every state leader helped to promote the constitutional amendments. Hardly anybody spoke out against them. Here's what they said. The constitutional amendment would authorize the suspension of the public school system, close the public schools, pay tuition to private schools in order to enable children to avoid attending school with another race. If the 15% of the voters in any local district petitioned the school board, the school board would be required to hold an election, and if a majority voted, close the entire public school system. <laughs> Compulsory attendance would be eliminated for any child assigned to a school that included students of another race, and in the largest voter turnout in history, these amendments were approved by the voters by a four to one margin, 75%. In the academic literature, which I, you're starting to get the idea that I disagree with, in the academic literature, the, the current body of knowledge says it was the leaders of the state that blocked desegregation. The people were willing. Uh-uh. That's not the way it was. I hope I've given you evidence to support that opinion. Go. Meanwhile, and as a former superintendent, I'm really not sympathetic. I, I'm, I tried to get inside the minds of these, of these people. If I had lived then and I had been a superintendent, what would I have done? And I would like to think I would have had the courage to do what these three did. Superintendent Ben L. Smith of Greensboro and the board chairs in Charlotte and Winston-Salem and Greensboro, Craig Phillips was the superintendent in Charlotte, got together very quietly and they started to make plans to admit black students to formerly all white schools. They were in communication with other superintendents all over the state, quietly, no public no, no public information, no press releases. And from the very beginning, this was intended to be the beginning of a step-by-step -step desegregation process 
because it was the right thing to do. It was the law. It was what the Supreme Court had said, and the board chairs and the superintendents, in consultation with attorneys and in consultation with Thomas Pearsall, Pearsall could attend the meeting because he was no longer a state official. The committee had been disbanded. Now he's acting as a private citizen. They began to plan to admit black students. They knew they had to do it on a small scale and they had to be really careful and they had to plan it very carefully. So they planned for the initial enrollment in the fall of 1957. Governor Hodges was officially neutral, but he publicly expressed his own personal preference for maintaining segregation. And he in fact made a series of speeches where he asked the people to engage in, his words, voluntary segregation to black parents. He said, don't, 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 don't try to change things. Let's just, just wait and see. Let's let, let the peace be maintained. The situation was very tense when these students enrolled. And go ahead and hit this. Uh, three photographs from newspapers. This is Josephine Boyd at Greensboro Senior High. Go ahead. Uh, Claude Joyner, the principal at Reynolds High School in Winston-Salem, and Gwendolyn Bailey. And Dorothy Counts at Harding High in Charlotte. Now this photo is iconic. It went all over the world. And there is a backstory that is unproven, but the state archivist told me he thinks it's true. James Baldwin was living in Paris, an exile, and he saw this photograph, and he said, I have to go back. All of them were subjected to harassment, I was not able to find any evidence that any of them were actually beaten, but remember, if we focus on the extreme, we miss the main point. They were harassed, they were harassed horribly. Josephine Boyd later commented, I could not, flip, go back to two shots. How unthreatening can that be? But she later said, I could not understand why they hated me so. They threw eggs at her, they threw tomatoes at her, they threw food at her in the cafeteria, they threw ice chips at her. But there's a backstory too. A history teacher, I may, I may have trouble with this. A history teacher, Louise Smith, Greensboro Senior High School, got together with a student council and she said, this is not right. And so they arranged for Josephine Boyd to eat her lunch in the balcony of the auditorium with the student council and football players guarding the doors. And at Reynolds High School, go ahead, when graffiti, and I'm not gonna quote it because you already know what the words were, were scrawled on the walls and in the doors, every afternoon the student council, the principal and the teachers were out there scrubbing it clean so everywhere there was harassment, bad as it was, there were responsible adults and responsible children who helped maintain the peace and treat people right. Go ahead. All of them except Josephine Boyd withdrew. 
Josephine Boyd stuck it out, and she became the first black graduate of a formerly all-white high school in the history of North Carolina. And that's why I chose her photograph to be on the cover. She died this past spring. She became a professor uh, at Clark University in Atlanta. Well, you gotta understand the national context for what's going on in North Carolina. No southern state admitted a single black kid. None, nowhere. The only admissions occurred in border states and in the southwest, Texas. No southern state admitted a single black kid during this period. A very prominent newspaper editor in Richmond, James Kilpatrick. Recognize the name, CBS News, news commentator? Later, thundered out, we cannot allow, allow the tyranny of the Supreme Court to go unchallenged, and the Virginia legislature passed resolutions of interposition and nullification, which said that no no Supreme Court decision could be enforced in the state of Virginia if the legislature uh, passed a law disagreeing. Does, does that sound familiar? You ever heard that one before? It's called the beginning of the Civil War. We're doing it all over again for the same reason. The Ku Klux Klan enters a period of resurgence all over the South. Um, I was friends with and was able to interview on a number of occasions and uh, he came to speak to my eighth grade uh, junior high history classes. Special Agent Dargan Frierson, who was in charge of the regional office of the FBI. And other historians have commented, the KKK wasn't that big a deal. They'd been infiltrated by the FBI. Uh, even the leadership were paid informants. That's true. Dargan Frierson ran a network of spies in the KKK. But what they told him scared him to death. They had guns, they had hand grenades, they had machine guns. The license plate on one of the cars at one of these demonstrations at one of the schools was traced to Fort Bragg. And they were convinced that not only was the KKK armed and dangerous, but that police officers and sheriffs were backing them. So don't underestimate the Klan. But don't concentrate on the Klan either. It was the law that was the problem. So the only number of admissions anywhere after Brown occurred in North Carolina. There weren't very many, but it's all there were. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement begins to bloom. In 1960, Terry Sanford was elected over I. Beverly Lake, who ran on a campaign of segregation. I was able to interview Terry Sanford. This has been quite some time ago uh, when he was in, in the Senate. Uh, one of my heroes, a great, great guy in my opinion. His campaign was based on quality education. And during the campaign, he told me that in Brunswick County, a principal called him up and said, I understand you're gonna be in town. Would, would you come to my school? and talk to the kids. And he visited the school, and he said the impact on me 
and the communication and the rapport that I experienced with the kids was magic. And from that point on, he never spoke to an adult audience. He spoke to kids and he invited adults to come and be observers. So Sanford won. Prior to Sanford, the NAACP was regarded as the enemy. Sanford assumed from the very beginning that they were doing what was reasonable and appropriate for their role. He was a lawyer. He saw where the law was going. Right off the bat, he enrolled his own children in a desegregated Raleigh public school. He established the Good Neighbor Councils all over the state. McNeil Smith, an attorney in Greensboro, was one of the most prominent, uh, another hero of this period. And in 1957, the federal, the general, the Congress passes the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1957, which addresses voting rights and starts to pave the way for civil rights legislation. In 1960, 1961, of 300, approximately 325,000 students in North Carolina public schools, 77 blacks were attending school in a desegregated setting. Chapel Hill, Carborough, developed and implemented the first system-wide desegregation plan in North Carolina. And they did it without a court order. They did it because their chairman said it's the right thing to do. And you start to hear throughout the late 1950s and in the early 60s this phrase, it's the right thing to do, repeatedly from, state, state, from leaders around the state. 1964 is a watershed year. The civil rights movement by this point is well underway. John F. Kennedy is assassinated. Lyndon Johnson accedes to the presidency, the former vice president, and he decides to make civil rights a key, the hallmark of his administration. This is a monumental decision for an individual who had always considered himself a southerner. He was from Texas. Uh, Texas isn't a southern state, but that's a different argument. And he commented when he made the decision, we're giving away the South for a generation. He underestimated it. His opponent, when he ran for election on his own term, was Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater, in trying to decide, and Goldwater was an avowed strong conservative in, in a lot of ways. We can spend the rest of the evening going over how, but strong conservative, the most conservative presidential candidate in the 20th century. And he was trying to figure out how to explain his position. And, there, and the, the nation was facing the civil rights movement. And two key advisors who were attorneys, brilliant attorneys, said, why don't you do it this way? Support states' rights. Tell everybody you're completely in favor of civil rights. You got no animosity toward blacks, but you shouldn't overturn states' rights. The names of those advisors were William Rehnquist and Robert Bork. You know William Rehnquist? United States Supreme Court Chief Justice later. At this point, we now have a complete flip-flop of the orientation of the nation's political parties. The Republicans, the party of Lincoln, historically the liberal party, 
now becomes the party that opposes civil rights. And the Democrats, dominated by the solid South, the segregationist South, becomes the liberal party that supports civil rights. A total flip-flop in one year. That year, Dan K. Moore, from the western part of the state, the mountain man, ran against L. Richardson Pryor of Greensboro, uh, judge, fair to say, revered judge in Greensboro. And I, Beverly Lake, again. By this time, Lake was downplaying race. It had become unfashionable to overtly be a segregationist, but he was still known as, quote, this is from the literature, the white man's candidate. But Lake doesn't come out uh, as a winner. Moore in the campaign denounces the Sanford wing of the Democratic Party for supporting civil rights. He associates Pryor with Sanford. Lake endorses Moore in the runoff. They tell everybody no promises have been made, but six months later, Moore appoints Lake to the state Supreme Court. And he was well qualified. He's a former law professor. So don't misread what I'm saying. But anyway, so in the Moore administration, we have a change of heart. The Sanford administration had actively sought to accommodate civil rights. The Moore administration actively seeks to maintain order. <sighs> Dallas Herring told me that he and State Superintendent Charles Carroll went to see Dan K. Moore early after early after he was elected. And they said, and by this time, Dallas Herring is chairman of the State Board of Education. And they said to Governor Moore, you know, what is your position going to be on the school desegregation issue? We've got to make some decisions. We have to give guidance to the superintendents. And they explained their, their quandary. And Dallas told me, Governor Moore listened very carefully and he said, that's your problem. And he ended the meeting. Up until this point, 1964, admissions of black students were occurring one at a time based on individual applications for transfer, based on North Carolina's Pupil Assignment Act that was passed right after Brown versus Board of Education as a function of the first Pearsall Commission. So there had been very little desegregation that actually occurred, <clears throat> as indicated in a previous slide. Less than 100 kids in the entire state had moved into formerly all-white schools. There's a lot of narration in this book about local litigation, where one school system after another responds to these applications for transfer. And I show what the courts were saying and at various points, which I refer to as inflection points, you can see the position of the courts beginning to change. Early on, as long as a local board did not clearly refuse to consider an application for transfer, the local board was upheld. And there's actually a statement from a district court judge who said, I am reluctant to interfere in the operation of the public schools. 
But in mid-1960s, courts start to change their, their point of view. And instead of looking at whether applications for individual transfer had been fairly processed, they start to look at whether any kids were actually reassigned. And that changes the perspective dramatically. School systems all over the state had been approved for their freedom of choice plans. But then the same plan that the federal government had approved two years ago became illegal after 1965 because it hadn't produced any results. So they went from process to results. So entire school systems all over the South came under the direct supervision of the newly established Federal Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. The Pearsall Plan was invalidated by uh, federal courts in 1965-66. Although the law was on the books for 10 years, nobody ever petitioned to close a school. Nobody ever applied for a voucher. Nobody ever asked for any money from the state until 1965, 1966. There was one application and uh, the family wanted the state to pay tuition for their son to go to Hargrave Military Academy. And the State Board of Education says, nah, that's an out-of-state school, we ain't paying for it. And that was the end of that one. So then, a couple of years later, uh, a Charlotte student applied for a, a tuition grant and the Charlotte Board of Education approved the grant. It went to the State Board of Education. The State Board of Education, Dallas Herring, expressed grave misgivings. Uh, but before the grant could be approved, uh, Darius Swan, Reverend E.J. Moore, and Dr. Reginald Hawkins, civil rights activists in Charlotte, filed suit seeking an injunction to restrain the payment and asking the federal court to declare the Pearsall Plan unconstitutional. There's a really ironic story here in the background. The U.S. attorney who was responsible for prosecuting the invalidation of the Pearsall plan was the same guy who managed the legislation through the legislature 15 years earlier. But by this time, being a good lawyer, you know, you're supposed to be able to argue a case even if, even if you don't agree with it. So being a good lawyer, uh, then he said it was necessary. Now, he says, times have changed. And so William Medford, a really, another really good lawyer, uh, argues as U.S. attorney that the Pearsall plan is unconstitutional. Andrew Venori, Jr., fresh out of law school, first year, is assigned the responsibility by the state attorney general to defend the state in the biggest lawsuit in history, just about. Now, I'm not going to make any claims in a public place, but what do you think the state attorney general thought was going to happen in this case when they assigned it? Uh, and, and, and Andy, I knew him. Uh, you know, he, everybody knew they were going to lose. There was no, no issue here. So Western District Court, Federal Court, ruled the Pearsall Plan unconstitutional, enjoined, said it cannot be enforced, and so the state decides not to appeal. That's the end of the Pearsall Plan. Never had any impact. When it was passed, Governor Hodges said, it is only for the purpose of assuring the people that we have a quote in his words, safety valve in case it's necessary. And we hope we will never use it. 
We can argue for generations about his wisdom, but in fact, it was never used. And it did prevent the hardliners in the General Assembly from abolishing the public schools. So I would argue it was successful. I have been attacked in professional journals for, quote, defending state leaders. I don't think I defended them. I think I explained them. And I think they saved the public schools. An unattended consequence. Uh, I interviewed uh, Julius Chambers and a number of the black attorneys who were involved in, in these lawsuits. And in Julius Chambers' words, this is one that got away from us. When you start looking at the way school systems had been organized as separate black and separate white, you have a teacher allocation based on the number of students in the school. But when the schools began to be reorganized on a desegregated basis, you have a larger school, a larger number of divisor, divisees, math people don't get on me if I get the word wrong, but what started to happen was school districts all over the state began to realize that they had a surplus number of teachers if they were allocating teachers based on the number of kids in the class. And so they started to dismiss the black teachers. And it was consistent. And so there's a whole string of lawsuits that appears in, in the record of the NAACP and the North Carolina Teachers Association, that was the Black Teachers Organization, uh, the NCEA, the North Carolina Education Association, was the White Teachers Organization, and I was on the committee that wrote the Constitution to merge the Guilford County Black and White Teacher Organizations a long time ago. Uh, I'm 70 years old. I've been, I've been in this stuff a long time. Uh, so what the courts found, a pattern emerges when I studied these cases. Consistently, time after time, at the local level, the district court upholds the dismissal of the black teachers by the local board of education. The rationale that's presented seems on its face to be reasonable. But then on appeal, filed by the NAACP or the NCTA, other information begins to surface, such as, where's the rule that says you gotta dismiss black teachers if you have a reduction in force? Why not the newest teachers? That's the way it had always been done before. Why the black teachers? Well, and the reason was, all of these school districts were still thinking in terms of Black teachers teach black kids, white teachers teach white kids, and that's the way they were allocating teachers. And it also became clear that black and white teachers were being subjected to different evaluation criteria. It also became, becomes clear that under the old segregated system, school, and this is, you know, there's only one Guilford County Board of Education. There's only one Forsyth County Board of Education and they're in charge of the black and the white schools. Now the boards are all white in almost every case. But they clearly allowed, assumed it was normal to have lower qualifications for black teachers than white teachers. So when the schools began to desegregate, they started laying off 
black teachers. Most of them in the litigation that went to appeal were reinstated. What also happened though, and this doesn't have a happy ending, school boards determined that you couldn't have a black principal in a desegregated school because white parents would not allow their children to be disciplined by a black principal. And I went back through the records for about 10 years and in the records you got the name of the principal and I compiled tables name by name and I checked to see when the changes occurred. And my calculations, which I did review with Department of Education officials who went, oh my God, when they saw the numbers. And then they said, yeah, that's right. 90% of the black principals lost their jobs, at least, at the high school level. And at least 50% of the elementary principals, black principals, lost their jobs. They may not have been fired outright, but they were reassigned as an assistant principal or as a teacher. Go ahead. In the mid-1960s and latter 1960s, we have a period of major racial unrest. <clears throat> Julius Chambers, the lead attorney in most of these cases, his car is firebombed, uh, his house is bombed. He said if he had lived in a, in a wooden house instead of a, a brick house, his children would have been killed. The outcome of that, though, was the white leadership of Charlotte and the Chamber of Commerce got together and helped him rebuild his house. Again, with every bad story, there's a backstory where some positive leadership starts to come through. Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968 was in Memphis to support the sanitation workers' strike. He was scheduled to come to North Carolina during the election of 1968 to support and help campaign for Reginald Hawkins, candidate for governor. He decided that the situation in Memphis demanded his full attention, so he decided to stay over in Memphis where he was assassinated. If he'd come to North Carolina, he wouldn't have been killed. White leadership, black leadership joins together and calls for peace. Greensboro incidents were among the most serious. A&T University was shut down in the spring. Students were sent home. Dudley High School was shut down. Students sent home. Serious unrest. Hyde County, North Carolina, students boycotted the entire school system for over a year. By the 19, latter 1960s, the NAACP, which had been considered a radical organization by white leadership, was now being welcomed as the voice of moderation because the other people they were looking at were SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Black Panthers, and I mean the NAACP. These were the good guys and glad to have them. The Coleman Report is an academic study that came out in 1966 as a, as a function of the Civil Rights Act. It's been widely misunderstood and misinterpreted. What it actually said was, if you look at the history of education and the impact of schools on children, first of all, there is a pattern of historic discrimination, which is thoroughly documented. But where you can find instances of school improvement for the most disadvantaged kids, you get dramatic results 
in terms of improved academic achievement. Black students who had spent most of their education in a desegregated or integrated setting showed the highest levels of achievement. And this became the most empirical, the most important empirical finding probably in American history and became the guiding document for court decisions from that point forward that mandated real movement of large numbers of black kids into desegregated settings. In the election of 1968, Robert Scott runs against, the son of Carr Scott runs against Reginald Hawkins, black civil rights activist, and Melville Broughton, who's also the son of a former governor. Scott wins over Jim Gardner, Republican candidate, but Nixon, the Republican candidate, carries North Carolina based on the Southern strategy which was a direct appeal to Southern whites who were angry over busing and affirmative action and the civil rights movement. Nixon's media advisor, Roger Ailes, subsequently starts a new enterprise, the Fox News Network, which is dedicated to reporting news from a conservative point of view. But the moderate that's not, that's not where the story lies. The next largest vote was for George Wallace in the presidential election. So my point with this is, there has always been in North Carolina history a very strong, very powerful, very right-wing, racially conservative element uh, that I would argue never went away. Go ahead. So anyway, new Supreme Court pre precedents say you have to desegregate now, all deliberate speed is over. Punch the button. Charlotte Mecklenburg, Swan versus uh, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education becomes the third in the most important series of school desegregation cases. Brown, green, Swan. The essence of Swan is school uh, courts have the authority to do essentially anything to require desegregation, including busing all over the county. Go ahead. Uh, all over the South, the federal government cut off federal funds, but not in North Carolina. No North Carolina district was found to be out of compliance. The state begins to actively assist local districts to desegregate two guys Gene Cosby and Dudley Flood, two of my heroes, become the desegregation assistance team and eventually work in every district in North Carolina. In most districts, the way they pulled off desegregation was pairing elementary schools, black and white, so that like K3 goes to one school, then four, six to another on a desegregated basis. And all over the state, there's a flurry of constructing new consolidated high schools that will be desegregated. <clears throat> Where there was success, key elements, a strong moral voice often coming out of churches, not in favor of flat-out desegregation, but preaching, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and a little child shall lead them. In 1970s, James Holshouser, the first Republican governor since Reconstruction, is elected. He is a strong advocate for 
public education across the board for all students. He institutes a series of reforms and he kept me in the public classroom. Thank you, Jim Holhauser. I would have quit that year if it hadn't been for his 30% salary increase for teachers. Uh, and go ahead. And then there's another Supreme Court decision that starts the pattern of retrenchment. Go ahead. <coughs> there is a movement toward white flight, moving to private white academies, but not on a widespread enough basis to have a significant impact on the public schools. Go ahead. And then by the early 1970s, almost all black students in North Carolina are attending desegregated schools. More than 90% of North Carolina school districts were declared unitary by the federal government more than in any other state. By the mid-1970s, North Carolina is operating the most thoroughly desegregated school system in the South, and the South, by a wide margin, is the most thoroughly desegregated school system in the United States. Go ahead. Under Holshauser, Martin, two Republicans, and Jim Hunt, a Democrat who served two separate terms, a series of school reform measures are instituted which pay off, go ahead, and the impact is a pattern of improved academic achievement, especially for lower income whites and blacks, just as the Coleman report had predicted and with whites in the middle class and upper middle class, there's almost no change. Think a minute. If you're already at the 90th percentile, how far more up can you go? Okay, go ahead. So in summary, the impetus for change came from three sources. Economic, direct action from the civil rights movement, which threatened to bring the economy to a standstill. Moral voice in the form of parents and ministers and educators who talked about what's right for children and legal lawsuits filed by the NAACP. Go ahead. In the 1990s, based on the Supreme Court decision Millikan, federal judges, the majority of whom by the 1990s were appointed by Ronald Reagan, began to issue decisions releasing districts, school districts from supervision and when that happens, local boards almost across the board reassign students based on neighborhoods and segregation returns. End of story. So that ain't a pretty picture. Well, you began by telling us that um, you're approaching this both from a point of scholarship and from having lived it. And both of those are very clear in your address. Thank you very much for all your words and for all your research. This is the first time I've done a presentation on this book, so I'm, I'm 15, 20, 30 minutes over, but I'll cut it down next time. Thank you. <laughs>
the, the work of the uh, <coughs> OGARA, the Guilford County Anti-Racism Alliance. So if you'd like to receive those, just make sure that we have your email. Um, if you haven't signed, uh, given us your email, do so on your way out. Um, uh, once again, I'd like to thank uh, Fusion Films for recording uh, this great lecture. And um, there's a basket on the way out if you want to support uh, their funding. Um, please do that too. There are copies of my books out there somewhere that I need back. And if anybody wants them, I have copies of them. So if you, if you didn't hear that, uh, don't steal his book. Um, <laughs> and if you want one, I can make them available. Good. Is there anything else that needs to be said? No. Okay. Thank you all very much. Good night.